1: entrepreneurs intrapreneurs helping to diversify the industry this week on business of the beast make
0: it till you make it well no wonder we have so many scammers right <laughs> <laughs> and so for me it's the fake that like the ego that insecurity like ooh, but it's not ooh, it's not real right and that can eventually cause you to stop or rob people of millions of dollars
1: Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Kendra Bracken Ferguson, and welcome to Business of the Beat. Today's guest is the founder of Four Naturals Treatment and a Tony-nominated actress, Shalita Grant. But before we get started, don't forget to follow, rate, and subscribe to Business of the Beat on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You don't want to miss an episode, and your ratings and reviews mean so much to us. All right, everyone. Tony nominated actress Shalita Grant publicly quit a popular television show after suffering from traction alopecia, thinning hair and breakage in front of an audience of millions. Shalita's response to her public and traumatic hair experience didn't lead her to quit the business or hide her hair forever. Instead, she founded Four Naturals Hair in 2019 and chose to heal both inside and out. Since creating the Four Naturals treatment, Shalita's characters look the best they ever have. As an actress, wetting her curls or thermally straightening her hair is no longer the life-altering impossibility it used to be. After overcoming her obstacles, Shalita created a standardized method to lift up other Black women still struggling with fragile, misunderstood hair. When Shalita isn't filming, she lives in Puebla, Mexico, with her partner, former MMA world champion Jessica Aguilar, and their three dogs. Shalita, welcome to Business of the Beat. I am so excited to have you on the show. Me too. I'm so glad to be here. Well, and this is a special treat because you are such a multi hyphenate. I don't think we've ever had a Tony nominated actress who (laughs) is turned entrepreneur, founder of such an amazing business that we all need. So this is like a double treat. Thank you. I have multi hyphenate like issues. So that's, uh, it's very great to hear that positively. <laughs> Girl, it's always positive. So many people say to me, you're doing this and that and that and this. And I'm like, wait a second. I'm doing all the things that I was put here to do and it's right. all connected. So why would you stifle me? Don't dim my
0: light. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, when we get deeper into my story, you'll find that I was one of those people that was like, you can't do all these things. So (laughs) the journey to (laughs) accepting uh, everything that God has given us and like what we're put on this earth to do,
1: it's not just one thing. Oh my goodness. That is such an excellent way to look at it. And as humans, we evolve, right? And we transform into new things. It's like the butterfly. So, you know, and you are such, you're the example of that. So let's jump in. Where are you? Are you in Mexico? Are you in Puebla, Mexico?
0: Yeah, I am. I'm in Puebla, Mexico. <laughs> this is my office in my house
1: in Mexico. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love this. Okay. So talk about transformation. So as we jump into this, I want to start with one word that you would like to embody that represents your 2023. What's mm, your word?
0: Fearless. Fearless even talking to you now is me living out those goals that I set for myself at the beginning of this year. Um, So for me, I believe that you can never be truly without fear. It's really about being um, less influenced by the fear, right? Like the fear often tells us to stop, right? And so for me, this year, it's about experiencing the fear, okay, Like, tell me more about this. What, what, what is it that we're afraid is gonna happen? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then doing it anyway, right? But doing it with the wisdom of like, hey, things can go left or right, but if I know that that's possible, then forewarned
1: is forearmed. Wow, that is so powerful because you're right. I think that it's, you know, we talk about turning fear into faith. We talk about the healthy fear. And the reality is that there's gonna be fear, but it is how do we experience it in a different way? And how do we use the wisdom that we have to overcome that fear? Because it's gonna creep back in, but it's just how do we get to the to the other side?
0: Yeah. I talk about like imposter syndrome, which is like <laughs> early day, you know? But um, but I talk about how like the imposter syndrome fear all of these feelings that like usually cause you to stop usually like cause you to like flatten out how do i turn that into a pit stop instead of a destination like sometimes when we experience that imposter syndrome it's like who do you think you are who do you think you are right and then like how do you think you're going to be successful how if you if you don't have any example of this how are you the one and so a lot of times we hear those internal thoughts and like questions you know and we let that flatten us or what's worse in my opinion is the what we in society like encourage which is fake it till you make it well No wonder we have so many scammers, right? (laughs) We need to like mm, break that down a little bit more, right? And so for me, I'm like, it's the (laughs) fake that 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 like the ego, that insecurity, like, ooh, but it's not, ooh, it's not real, right? And that can eventually cause you to stop or rob people of millions of dollars, right? To like, I'll show you that, I'll show you fear. And then you like create an email list of a... Three million people that don't exist, so you can get some money from J.P. Morgan, right? So, <laughs> so how do we like do not go down that road, right? How do we go down a road of, you know, my business coach talked about how entrepreneurship is a spiritual journey, but how do I grow internally? And for me, it has been, all right. I can't run from these feelings because what you resist persists so how can I get comfortable with the uncomfortable? And when it comes to the imposter syndrome, right? Like you, an external, like the internal feeling of an a potential external failure. And because internally I believe that I'm a failure, if I have that externally validated, then I'm going to fall apart. So for me, it's like, all right, it doesn't have to end that way. But what is this imposter syndrome asking me to do? So it's a pit stop. And in that pit stop, for me, it's always about learning, gaining more value. Because you're right, imposter syndrome. I don't have a success uh, example that's close to me. You're absolutely right. But there are success examples out there. I just don't know them yet. So in this pit stop time, I'm going to pick up the e-myth, uh, revisited, and learn about systems. I'm going to pick up Think and Grow Rich and, like, analyze how I grew up with this, like, get-rich-quick mindset and, like, in, embody a mindset of growth and values, right? And creating value for people. And then when I go back to that external thing, that widget, I'm now coming with wisdom, So when I feel that nagging, because it is, it's just your whole life. It's never going to end. But when I, when it comes up, it's like, oh no, baby girl, I do though. And then it's like, okay, focus.
1: Yes. You know, there are so many pieces to what you said. And, you know, especially as women, we talk about imposter syndrome. We talk about overcoming. We talk about getting to the other side. And you mentioned a few things you talked about, you know, getting over this, get quick, rich mentality from growing up. And you talk about understanding who you are and who do you think you are? And so I want to kind of take a step back because you've spoken some true profound nuggets that we all experience, but you've also talked about how you conquer it. So take us back to your background, your childhood, and kind of this path to where you are now and, and kind of what shaped this philosophy.
0: Yeah. So um, I always say I was raised by children. And uh, children (laughs) make terrible parents. Um, They're mean, they're impatient, they're neglectful. Um, And I had on my mother's side, our like generational curse is just early motherhood. So my great, great grandmother died when I was nine years old. Uh, she was a bootlegger. So the funeral was very interesting. Um, and then my great grandmother died when I was in 2018. So, you know, they started having children at 14, 15. My grandmother was 15 when she had 15 or 16, when she had my mom, my mom was 18 when she had me and my dad was 17. So for me, when I came into this world, it's been nothing but, topsy turvy. Like it's been like, she gave me up at one to her mom to pursue, you know, her dreams of living that eighties, late eighties, early nineties, you know, lifestyle. And she had two more kids after me. I was raised by grandparents. My mom is the oldest child. So all of my aunts and uncles were children watching me. Right. And then my mom got locked up when I was five. And for me, the experience was I wake up and I've been living with this woman for about a year and a half by this point. And I have these two younger siblings. And I wake up one day and she's just not there. And she's not there for days. And so her mother came to Baltimore. And I remember my grandmother, like sitting in the chair, like looking at the three of us because she had just had seven kids and her two last kids are twins and they were in like middle school. And she was just looking at us and I just remember her like the like heaviness. And I remember like climbing into her arms and being like, please don't leave us. <laughs> please don't leave us here. Oh,
1: wow.
0: So, you know, I learned pretty early on, like I went to six different elementary schools uh, because after my mom got out of jail, we just moved place to place. I went to the same middle school. I went to two different high schools in two different States. Uh, because by the time I was 15, I like, when I was 12, my mom and I like parted ways. She kicked me out. Um, and then I lived with different family members for three years. And then when I was 15, I moved up to Baltimore with my dad's family. So by this point, who are my parents? So my mom is like this convicted felon who like got out and just didn't stop. And so, you know, she's for, for her, the multi-hyphenate, that's where the th- comes in. Because when she got out, I mean, she was a rapper. She was a choreographer, a manager of models, a manager of musicians. She, like, found Jesus. And then it was, like, youth pastor, youth uh, dance coordinator, mime, you know, like, just, like, everything. A perfumiere. She's an author. She's a poet. And so I grew up, whenever I was living with her, just like doing whatever like the thing is. We sell in t-shirts mm-hmm. today, okay. You know, we sell we sell in ice snow cones today, okay. You know, you're gonna go to New York and leave all three of your kids for the weekend to go get some wholesale bootleg stuff. Like we had the bootleg tapes. I remember when I was nine years old and I was watching one of them that was like, you gonna go to jail, you know, 10 years per tape. And she had our house like lined up like walls, like with the shelves, she put all the bootleg tapes on. And I just looked around like they're going to put her under the jail. Like they're just going to put her underneath because we have, (laughs) we have like a thousand years worth of tapes in here and somebody got to do the time. So my dad (laughs) quit school in the sixth grade. Um, he wanted to live that life, you know, like new Jack city, like all that. Like that was like, that was interesting to both of my parents. And so that's what he wanted to do. So he quit school and he was out on the street doing his thing. And, you know, he met my mom and had me and then they parted ways. And then he was shot in the face. He survived. I always say I have bulletproof uh, cheekbones. Um, bulletproof. <laughs> yeah. Like just in case um and then he like went down this whole like Jesus route and you know whatever but was still scamming you know still like doing his thing so when i moved in with him when i was 15 he was selling t-shirts at the patapsco flea market you know in baltimore and so he brought me out and because i had had all this training with my mom with all this stuff it was just like a duck to the water. It was just like, all right, I gotta come up with some fun slogans because everybody at the flea market is selling t-shirts. So how are our t-shirts different? And, you know, I would draw a crowd, you know, five for 20, that was our deal. And and I would come up with fun (laughs) stuff like, you know, go from geek to chic in just one week. You know, Jack's got magic beans, we got magic teas. When I had the stand outside, the guys that would smoke cigarettes, I would throw a black t-shirt on their back and be like, hey, a t-shirt to match your lungs, player. (laughs) And some people loved it. (laughs) Some people not so much. Um, So so that was my childhood, man. It was just wild. So when I moved in with my dad, you know, this was for me a, a real big turning point in how I got on my first life. So when I moved in with him, he had told my mom that he had got me into the school or whatever. He didn't. Uh, so I got X-rolled in 10th grade in, from this governor's school that, you know, by the time I got through the first year, I was, like, cutting school. I was so mad. You know, it was an art school, but I wasn't being challenged. And so I was hanging out with, you know, drug dealers in, you know, Petersburg, Virginia, just, like, throwing my, my time away um but when i got to baltimore it was like oh this is like this is the end result of my like teenage anger right so but my dad decided that because he quit school in the 6th grade I probably wouldn't want to go to school either. So he had me basically as his nanny. I was, he had three, four, five other kids. Uh, His wife had two, he had three. Um, And I was walking them to school in the morning. I was watching Maury Povich in the afternoon and then making dinner for everyone and then going to get the kids. And so I look up and it's like a few weeks of this and I'm like, am I ever going to go to school? Mm -hmm. So I had to like, Petition him to like take, I heard there's a Baltimore school for the arts. So like, can I just go there? So he got tired of me. And one day we went and my dad, like, I mean, he would smell good, but he was like, he looked like a hood dude who was driving a Prius at that time. Um, so when we walked in to the school, they were like, uh, what? And he's like, I need to see the head of the acting department, you know? And so they brought Donald Hicken down. And he heard my dad and he was looking at me. And I was like, I was at a governor's school in Virginia. I can do like four monologues for you right now. I just want to go to school. And he was like, come back next week. We'll do it right. And I got into that school after that audition. And it was that school that put me on the path to Juilliard. So in my last year, they had like access to all this information and so they like were like hey there's this monologue contest and I would just say yes to everything because I was surrounded by the potential of you know dicking off and like saying no and like not being prepared and I wanted to just have a different experience so I said yes mm-hmm. and I was prepared for everything and I just started winning all this stuff and then I a teacher was like, you thought about college? I'm like, yeah, you know, thought about it. I don't really know. Maybe I'll go into nursing or something. I don't know. And I'll tell you the story. I haven't actually told this story before, but BSA is the school that Jada Pinkett went to. And one day, I it was like a day I had the conversation with my acting teacher. And um, I went up and me and my friend, we like cut a class and we were just like up in the art studio, like just looking out um, on Cathedral Street. And she was like, hey, like, what do you want to do? Like, cause everybody's like asking. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know, man. I think I might just do nursing because, you know, I don't have an example of a successful actress in my family, right? So it's <laughs> like, I know that my aunt, is like one of the more successful siblings of my mom. And she's a registered nurse. So like, maybe I'll do that. I leave school and I used to walk to my stepmom's job um, at the Veterans Administration Hospital in downtown across from Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. And I would walk from uh, BSA to basically like Johns Hopkins. And right outside of the school, I'm about to cross the street and there's this homeless guy like on the corner. And he looks at me. And he goes, Jada Pinkett, 1986, 87. Are you it? Are you it? And it freaked, it still makes me like tear oh up, gosh. but it freaked me out. And it was like, like a God moment. Like, yeah. oh my God. Wow. And I ran. I ran because I was like, he's crazy, but he might be an angel. And so I'm scared. <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm a bad girl, so I don't know. Um, and it was honestly like that encounter that made me like open when I got the opportunity to like audition to Juilliard. And I got in like long story short, got in, <laughs> graduated and and started working. um I did Shakespeare in the park and I did you know another like Shakespeare thing and then, Three years later, I was nominated for a Tony.
1: Oh my gosh, Shalita, I am like, I'm emotional. I'm like at the edge (laughs) of my seat. Like there's so many pieces here. And I think it's interesting because as adults, you know, we can all say that no one leaves childhood unscarred, right? No one does. There's something other people may have it more extreme, but we all have some scarring from childhood. And it's really interesting because there were so many parts of your story. And even thinking about having the wherewithal to say, okay, I've sat here for three weeks. This is not my life to take care of things, to be the nanny. There has to be something better. And there has to be something different. And being able to break a generational curse and to not even know the innate talent that you had. And I love this because there are so many signs that we get, right? So someone's saying, are you it? Are you it? And we could easily get the sign and then turn away or get the sign and say, oh, that wasn't for me. But you ran into the next phase of your future. And I think it's so fascinating because you said at 15, it was this pivotal moment going to live with your dad. But now these years later you are truly living out this dream that no one could have imagined. And so I have a question for you in terms of defining moments. We've been talking about that defining moment. You had one at 15 and now it's all these years later. What would you say has been your defining moment from that moment at 15 to where you are now?
0: I would say the next like pivotal defining moment, would be my first series regular job. Wow. Okay.
1: All right. Let's get into that. (laughs) (laughs) So picture this. Picture this.
0: It's 2015. And um, I've been in LA for a year and a half at this point. And, you know, it's hard. Like that first year, I went out for something like 57 different projects. Projects which meant that I was auditioning and getting rejected over a hundred times, right? Oh <laughs> so gosh. so it was hard. It was really hard. And when I got to LA, it was really about the look. So I had hair moment. Two years after I graduated Juilliard, I get an audition and it's for this role that I'm like, oh, because by this point I had gone natural. And I had never, like, I hadn't, like, done any, like, heat styling on my hair for, like,
1: years.
0: So I get this audition, and I'm, like, this is a woman that wears wigs. Because it was basically, like, love and hip-hop, but, like, scripted. Um, But I was, like, I don't got no money for no wig. (laughs) And I was in LA. I was in New York. And so I was, like, I'll just use my own hair. Flat ironed it. I was, like, oh, look at this length. Got a call back. Amazing! I knew this was the right choice. Didn't get the job. Get in the shower and I rinse my hair and tragedy because my hair is limp. It no longer has the volume, there's no shrinkage. There are whole sections of my hair that are just straight. So, for the Tony season, you will notice if you looked at my first uh, press event for the Broadway show and you looked at one of my last press events, My hair is, like, it goes from, like, this bob to, like, this pixie cut. And that was because I was struggling with this heat damage. I did this big chop, and then, like, it didn't really look that great. And so I was, like, I'm just going to try the creamy crack again. (laughs) And then I was, like, flat ironing my hair. And then my hair just was creeping up, creeping up, back to the scalp. So two years later, 2015, I'm still dealing with – that hair trauma. So I get two shows in one. I got NCIS New Orleans and I got Mercy Street. And I shoot them both at the same time. Oh, baby. You could not tell me I was not jazzy. Okay? You could not tell me <laughs> that I had not made it in. It was like, oh, and then after this, the Academy Award, baby. Because who's doing that? You know? Mm-hmm. I get on NCIS. I do my first season. And in that show... Uh, That first season, I was wearing like my hair perimeter, but then I had this wig. I get the call. You're our new series regular. And so- Yes. I'm like, hallelujah. But then still small voice is like, but your hair. What are you going to do with your hair? So the humidity in New Orleans is unmatched.
1: Crazy. Okay. Mm -hmm.
0: And I knew that- All the heat that we were using, my hair was going to shrink up and break off. And so I asked for Mm. curl definition. And that is what all of those fans saw for the next three years was them struggling, me struggling with hair damage. So I have typical African-American hair in Mm. that pre-treatment, and we'll discuss what treatment we're talking about, but... At this time, if my hair saw a flat iron, it was damaged straight. If I encountered any water, my hair, no matter how long I sat with a twist out or whatever, my hair would turn into a fro. It would shrink, shrivel, get hard, and fro out. I had no curl definition. My hair, even though it got wet, it got dry really fast. I had this like, ashy gray natural color that constantly made my hair look dry, but it wouldn't be. And so I had this atypical position where in order to do my job, they have to do my hair. And so that was the catch 22 I was in because them doing my hair was causing it to break off. And then because of that breakage, I had, I was the one that had to come up with a solution to, you know, make sure that that part doesn't break anymore, but I still have to be in this ponytail. So it was three years of just this hair hell, but I wasn't the only black woman dealing with this, right? Like I'm not the only black woman in Hollywood Mm -hmm. that had the experiences that I had, but I was having it. And for me, you know, you know where I come from, This job was a dream come true. Yes. And because of the dream that I wanted it to be and the reality of what it was, it became a nightmare. And it became a nightmare that I had to end because if I continued to stay there, it could potentially end my career. So I had to go. When I left, it was all about healing, but it was also about like trying to like find an external validation that would like disinvalidate the internal fear that because I looked insane on national television for years (laughs) that I would never be able to work again. And, you know, three months after I left that show, I did a recurring arc on Santa Clarita Diet. And then immediately after I did that, I got Search Party and shot Search Party in 2018. So then it's 2019. And you would think, Kendra, that I would be happy at this point. But I wasn't. I wasn't happy in 2019. Because the truth was both of those characters were still in wigs. So the fear that I had, the reason I wasn't happy was because even though I got off that show, the issue wasn't solved. I was still encountering hairstylists on sets who didn't have any idea what to do with my hair and didn't care. They knew that regardless of what they knew or what they did, I would be the one that would try to make it right, right? Like, I don't know what to do, what do I do? And they knew that, it would be smart of me to have a solution for them. Right. And so I thought, wow, I'm probably never going to not have that experience again, unless I can solve my
1: own hair problems. That is so crazy. And at the same time, we know that it still exists. And we know that Women in Hollywood are still trying to get equity when it comes to their hair. And when I think about all of this success, to to your point, like you had the dream job. This was what you had worked for. But then you made a great point that you had to solve it yourself. People were looking for you to; They were like, this is work. We're going to keep going. And you're like, I had to solve it. And so when you think about this transition from everything that you experienced to now saying, let me solve it, what was that process like? Like, how did you get to this place where, one, you had the courage, and then two, you had the network of people around you to say, Four Naturals is real, and I'm going after it.
0: Yeah. So I didn't have the network of people around me. Uh, Because the truth is no one was looking for me to solve this problem because the problems that we are talking about for your audiences, like edification, these are problems that you believe just come with you being alive. That's the difference. It is so ingrained, these problems that we've had, they've been generational, right? And so no one was looking for me to solve this problem how did I get here? Well, for me, it was like a combination of like trauma therapy, pole dance, and like <laughs> working with like all of these like hairstylists. So what does that got to do with the price of tea in China? Well, when I quit that job, <laughs> for me, that was the top I had the money, Kendra, I had all the money, yo. Mm -hmm. So when I wasn't working, (laughs) I was calling all the people. Oh, you work with Beyonce? You want to do my wig for a photo shoot? Oh, you work with Rihanna? Oh, you want to do me for a a red carpet? So I had been to the top of the mountain. And the realistic experience of being at the top of the mountain as a Black woman with typical black hair, is no one is up there. No one's up there and they're not coming to save you. Just because you have the money doesn't mean that your problem is going to get solved. Look at all of our black women starlets. They're all bewigged. Save for maybe one mm-hmm. or two of them, right? So that should say to you that no one is coming for the real of us. And The experience that I had on that show was one where, you know, when I did read those comments, it was black people who were hurt to see one of their own on a platform, failing spectacularly in this area that has brought us pain, right? And knowing that there are other black women on other shows who are clearly wearing lace front wigs, they're just not as distracting as mine right? So it will be like, why can't she get this wig? Why can't she get that wig? It's because the work that I, just because we're on TV doesn't mean we're doing the same thing, all right? There's a difference right. between sitting in a in a restaurant that's barely full of people on a reality show, getting drinks thrown around, than it is being in the middle of Louisiana and running with guns and sweat dripping down your lace front, lifting up the glue. It's a very, it's very different, right? And what you need the hair to be able to do to be able to endure, it's a high ticket. It's really high on my side. So when I left that show, I knew that I have PTSD. I had been in therapy the entire time that I was doing the show and my therapist confirmed this is PTSD, what you're experiencing, and it would behoove you to switch to somatic therapy, do a trial and work out what these feelings are, right? So I did somatic therapy. What is somatic therapy? Somatic therapy is different from talk therapy in that somatic therapy focuses on- the body and how the body experiences emotions so that the person having this experience has the awareness and the wherewithal to guide their body out of that hyper active, hyper vigilant, triggered state to a state of calm. And so it's tools. And so I did that for three months and you just... Really working on emotional awareness. Mm. Like Mm -hmm. really like when I get that thing in the back of my throat, that's not something that I need to take a Benadryl for. That might be, (laughs) I heard something that hurt me, you know, that's how hurt and shame shows up for me. And so instead of running from that feeling that will persist, I am aware of it. And then, because I've worked on these tools in therapy, I have things that I can do physically that will help me. you're safe, you're mm-hmm. safe. But with that comes like you're you start feeling and 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 being aware of feelings you didn't even realize were worth checking yes so two thousand nineteen, I'm watching Real Housewives of Atlanta, and I get this. Ick feeling. I love Kenya. When she's right, she's right. When she's wrong, she's wrong. But I was watching her and I was like, ugh. And I was like, what is that about? It was envy. Mm-hmm. I had envy. I had hair envy. And when I like sat down with those feelings and was like, what is this about? Like, tell me more about this. And it's like, because she's a black woman who's on television and she looks beautiful and most of it is her hair. <laughs> and you will never have that
1: experience. Wow. Wow. All right, everyone. I'm so excited. This week, we had such a dynamic conversation that we are giving you part one and part two for Shalita Grant. So this week, you'll be hearing about her earlier life, her childhood, her experience, and her defining moment that leads us into part two, where we get into the nitty-gritty of the business that she's building through Four Naturals. Make sure to check out both episodes, and as always... Don't forget to follow, rate, and subscribe to Business of the Beat on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You don't want to miss an episode, and we love to hear from you. Leave a five-star rating and a review. Until next week. Business of
0: the Beat is hosted by Kendra Bracken-Ferguson, assistant producer Jenny Salk, executive producer Kendra Bracken-Ferguson, edited by Fish Mar Creative, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the Business of the Beat podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, odyssey amazon music or where you get your podcast and on ig at business of the beat business of the beat is a mean old line media production